Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Welcome to If You Love This Planet. Today I'm speaking with Bob Herbert, a former op-ed columnist for the New York Times and a distinguished senior fellow at DEMOS, a national organization in the U.S. that combines research, policy development and advocacy to influence public debate and to catalyze change. Bob Herbert is writing a book called Wounded Colossus about some of the big challenges facing the United States. Bob Herbert, welcome to If You Love This Planet. Hi, Helen. How are you? I'm all right, Bob. Now, okay, tell us about your book. Well, um, as you said, it's called Wounded Colossus. And, um, you know, the last column that I did for the New York Times, it's actually been over a year now, was um, it had the headline, Losing Our Way. And uh, I just think that the United States has lost its way um, on so many on so many fronts. So um, we have big challenges. We have to. Uh, we, we have a terrible employment crisis in this country that has now gone on uh, for years. Um, the public education system uh, has deteriorated, um, and even higher education, which the U.S. has traditionally had the finest higher education system in the in the world, um, even support for that has been diminishing uh, lately. So, th- so. Um, there are uh, big changes that are needed, the big improvements that are needed on a, on a broad front. So those are some of the things that I'm going to be writing about. Yeah, wounded colossus. I mean, America reminds me of Rome fiddling while, while Rome burns, you know? Well, I'm worried about that. I mean, and one of the points I'm going to be making in the book is that uh, we keep fighting these um, insane wars that go on for years and years and years, sometimes for more than a, a decade, uh, we get involved in these wars. We don't know how to win them. We don't know how to pay for them. You know, and that, and that we'll never get our act together if if we keep doing that. I mean, we're still in Afghanistan, and September 11th w- was was over a decade ago. I mean, it, it it just makes no sense at all. But it wasn't right to go into Afghanistan anyway. That was just vengeance. Um, you well, know, I, of I the mean, 19 I mean, people. Of the 19 people who went into the World Trade Towers, 15 came from Saudi Arabia. Uh, I know, but I may disagree with you on that. I didn't have a problem um, going into Afghanistan after Osama bin Laden and the Taliban. They they were in Afghanistan, and the uh, Taliban had, in fact, sheltered them. Uh, but I um, was not in favor of a broad, endless war. I mean, I, I was in favor of going after the folks who had attacked the United States. What we did is we invaded Afghanistan, uh, forced the Taliban out of power, and then turned our attention to Iraq, which was absolutely a war that we, sh- we should, it was an invasion we never should have uh, uh, conducted. Uh, and so then the, the whole thing just became a, a, a tragic fiasco. But I do think that we had every right to go 
uh, after Al-Qaeda, yeah, after you, September 11th. But you folks created the Taliban in the war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. No, 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 no. That's, that's true, Helen. But the fact is that the United States was attacked on September 11, 2001. Now, I was in the service uh, many years ago. I'm not a pacifist. I, do not, uh, I am not in favor of allowing our country to be attacked and, but then and not couldn't responding. You have, yeah, but you're very clever. You got lots of spies. You could have gone in and found Osama bin Laden um, and the the necessary operatives, and you could have taken them out without well, going in and killing people. I'm in favor of that. I'm not in favor of that. If if the United States is going to be attacked, I I'm in favor of responding to the people responsible uh, for the attack who, who conducted the to the attack. Yeah, yeah but I had just... no problem. It's not it's not that I had no problem with it. I was in favor of it. But I was not in favor of waging a long war in Afghanistan. I was I was never in, in favor of that. Well, then when would but, you? But I mean, I live in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, and uh, so you know, the attack on the World Trade Center it was almost like a, an attack in in the uh, in my neighborhood. My wife works on Wall Street. It was is just a few blocks from ground zero 3000 people were killed the the city was a mess for the longest time after that the idea of not responding forcefully to something like that to me just doesn't make sense yeah but but think about it bob herbert um the, you know the you know the people who orchestrated it there weren't a lot why invade a country why not focus on the people we went into Afghanistan, or at least I thought the intent of going into Afghanistan was to go after Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, because that's where they were. And then at what point would you have pulled out then? I would have, I would have focused um, the invasion on them, so I would have, I would have gone after them and, and uh, attempted to capture or, or kill Osama bin Laden and destroy Al Qaeda. And in fact, there came a point where um, they had located um, Osama bin Laden at Tora Bora, mm. and um, we outsourced the effort to go after him. I mean, the Bush administration didn't even close in on him. So I mean, it made no sense at all. So yeah, I'm not why trying to they? defend. Why I'm did... not trying to defend the conduct of this war. Mm. All I'm saying is that I was in favor of invading Afghanistan to go after Osama bin yeah. Laden and al-Qaeda. Well, why, why didn't George Bush go after him at Tora Bora when they knew where he was? So I don't well, understand that. Well, that's a complicated that. question. He, by that time, he was obsessed with Iraq, I guess. Yeah, because he wanted to... What, what they threatened the life of his father, so he wanted to go in there and... Well, I think that there were a lot of reasons. And the um, oil? None of, none of them. I think there were a lot of reasons, and none of them were legitimate for invading uh, Iraq. Well, it's interesting because you sent me a piece about what you wanted to talk about, and you said we, we should be out of Afghanistan, and I know a fair amount about the toll the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have taken on the United States, but what about I'm, the toll? I'm writing, I'm, writing a great, I'm writing a great deal about that. But what about the toll it took on the Iraqi people, like over a million people I, being killed? I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm writing about that, too. The, the toll these wars have taken on the, Iraq, on the Iraqi people, on the uh, people of, uh, on the civilians in Afghanistan, um, the number of innocent uh, people who have been killed. I mean, I think it's absolutely uh, horrendous. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not, I'm not defending the conduct of that war. I'm just saying that I was in favor 
of invading uh, Afghanistan to go after Osama yeah, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. I hear that. I wasn't, but we, we, we will do, agree to disagree. But, <laughs> <laughs> but do you think um, part of the dynamic is the military-industrial complex has to have wars because it's great because when you make weapons and they get destroyed in wars, you've got to make more weapons and the like. Do you think that that was part of the dynamic of these two terrible, terrible situations? Well, I think I think that was the ultimately um, became the dynamic, and certainly that was part of the dynamic in going after Iraq. But I uh, I honestly believe that in terms of the initial response uh, after September 11, 2001, um, that that was a, a visceral response that was overwhelmingly supported by the American people and was overwhelmingly supported by the nations around the world. Yeah, but I accept that I accept that concept from you, but we're moving on from that to say the the ongoing death and destruction since that time that's now a long time in both those countries. Do you think it I I think of... I think that's I think that's unconscionable and yeah. I I do think that um um Part of um, or among the factors involved there uh, is this military-industrial um, uh, complex, where there's this endless development of uh, weapons, where the United States uh, spends insane amounts of of, of money, um, you know, almost more than the rest of the world combined mm. uh, on the on its defense establishment. We have. Um, military bases all around the world, and then there are uh, behaviors that we are engaged in that I have, uh, uh, that I am vehemently opposed to and, and that I've written about over, um, over many years. So this sort of, um, the militarism um, that has become uh, part of the, uh, uh, one of the great dynamics of American life, uh, I'm not in favor of that. Um, it causes uh, great grief and tragedy in many places um, around the world, but it's also um, self-destructive in terms of um, the United States and the American people. How? Well, it it uh, it consumes uh, energy and resources on an enormous scale that are absolutely um, necessary to uh, maintain a first-class nation. So, you know, we have sky-high poverty rates, sky-high unemployment, a deteriorating uh, education system, a deteriorating um, infrastructure, and so many other problems um, that we're not addressing. We have uh, monstrous budget deficits, um, you know, so that we have uh, politicians who say, oh, yes, we have these problems, but we don't have the money to fix them, you know. Um, there's no money for um, investments in a, a, a brighter future for the United States or in the um, uh, creating opportunities for the young people coming out of school now. So it hurts us in that way. It also hurts us in the sense that we've um, had all these folks who have been fighting in these wars. Uh, thousands have been killed. Uh, many have suffered devastating uh, injuries. Mm. Um, Their lives and the lives of their families have been uh, disrupted to a monstrous uh, degree, and there is an obligation uh, to care for these folks, many of whom 
uh, have to be cared for for the rest of their lives. Mm. So for decades to come, uh, we'll be paying the bill for um, the uh, health care and, and other problems incurred in, in these wars. So the toll on the United States um, is is just incredible. That that's a major factor in the book that I'm that I'm writing about. What about so so sad that so many of the veterans coming back from these two wars end up as homeless people? I, why why do they become homeless, Bob Herbert? I don't understand. Because that at there's all. because be, be, but, but there's a number of reasons for it. The, the first reason is because the United States no longer creates enough uh, employment for all the people uh, in this country who need to work. Mm. And that's one of the reasons uh, why um, many of the young people actually go into the military, because they, yeah. they, they don't have um, much in the way of educational opportunities, and they have difficulty finding gainful employment, so they go into the um, military. Um, when they... Um, come out of the Army or the Marines or the Air Force or the Navy, um, you know, the, the job situation is no better. Uh, they're no better prepared for work, and there are, no, there are no additional jobs available. So they're left in, a, in an um, employment environment that's really untenable. Then on top of that, many of them come back with, um, even if they're not physically wounded, but they they come back depressed, or mm. they have uh, post um, traumatic stress disorder. Um, uh, a, a lot of the people, because of these uh, roadside bombs, that is the major weapon against the uh, GIs in um, uh, both co- countries. But a, a lot of people coming back have traumatic brain injuries and that sort of thing. So um, there's all kinds of problems. The other thing is that combat is is a really a horrible thing. I mean, I got drafted in the build-up to the Vietnam War. I did not go to Vietnam through the luck of the draw. I got sent to Korea, spent 14 months in Korea while, while so many people were fighting in Vietnam. But many of my buddies went to Vietnam. Um, some were killed. I lost a lot of friends in Vietnam. But many came back with all kinds of problems. They were addicted to drugs. Um, they were depressed. They drank too much. They couldn't hold relationships together. Um, they had uh, trouble hanging on to a job. And in those days, um, jobs were plentiful, but, but a lot of the fellows had trouble hanging on to the jobs once they got them. So there's a, a whole range of problems that come with warfare. Mm. Warfare is hideous in almost every way. It's, uh, it's hideous for the people who have to fight it's um, hideous for the innocent civilians that get caught up in it. It's hideous for um, the government back home, even if even if you're if you're fighting the war, but you're not in the war zone um, yourself. I mean, wars are so terrible that they should only be fought if there is absolutely no alternative. And we keep fighting these wars uh, not only when there are alternatives to them, but when um, the, in some cases, the wars themselves make absolutely no sense at all, like the war in Iraq, for example. Well, you've been in the military, and I'm really interested, Bob Herbert, in how they train men, and now some women, to become killers, because you brought up in particularly the American society to be relatively civilized, and if anyone kills, they go to jail, and you know, if there's capital punishment in the state, they go to the electric chair and the like, because that's a crime. 
Um, but but they train these young people, innocent young people, to become killers. How do they do that psychologically, Bob Herbert? That's not that's not difficult. They do it. <laughs> they do it quickly. How they do it in basic they do it in basic training. That's what basic training yeah, is about. Yeah, but what is the basic you're training? You're in a you're in a you're in a uh, basic training. When I was in the in the service in the army, basic training um, lasted for eight weeks. Uh, you were very uh, regimented up early in the morning, um, and they're training you all day long with these uh, drill sergeants, mostly drill instructors. Um, and they're teaching you how to fire these weapons, how to kill people with weapons, how to kill people with bayonets, um, how to throw um, how to throw hand grenades and rocket launchers and, and all of those sorts of things. And they keep drilling into your head from morning to night that the purpose of your existence from that moment on is to kill the enemy, that you are going into combat that the enemy has one goal in mind, and that is to kill you. And so the only way that you can survive, and then the only way that you can ensure that your um, fellow citizens in your country uh, will survive, is to become an effective killer yourself. Now, I happen to believe that that is the point of warfare, which is why I think warfare, um, which is why I think that you should resist war uh, to the extent that you can. But if you have no choice but to fight a war, for example, as the United States and, and um, much of the rest of the world had to do in World War II, well, then I think that your military um, should be trained to overwhelm the enemy, has to be trained to be more effective at killing than, in, in the case of the United States, say, than Nazi Germany was or, or the, um, than the Japanese were uh, at that time. But... That should only be the case when there is no alternative to war. If there is an alternative to war, I don't think you should be putting your citizens um, through that kind of um, uh, intensive brainwashing. I mean, you know, you, you, you're going to reap bad things as a result. What about the First World War? Well, I'm not sure how qualified I am to. to well, you guess. must have read about it, Bob. <laughs> to, to, to make, I, I have read about it, but you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't really want to make a judgment slaughter. on. Pardon? Absolute senseless slaughter. It was it was absolute senseless senseless um, slaughter, but you know, um, you know, it's now uh, twenty twelve, almost almost yeah, a know, century but... later. My plate is full. Uh, thinking about Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, Vietnam and Korea and, you know, who knows what else. And then then these young people come back from the wars having seen pigs rooting around in the bodies of babies and, you know, seeing their buddies being killed and then developing a sense of anger and, and grief. And, I mean, what does that do to the human psyche of these fairly undeveloped Beautiful young brains. Well, actually, brains, I mean, you know? I, th- I think that it can do, obviously, it can do terrible things. And, and for a lot of people, you know, we have an epidemic of suicides yes. in the United Absolutely. States among, uh, ser- among service members and veterans. So, obviously, it can do terrible things uh, to people. But I don't want to overstate it. Most of the people who come back uh, from a, a war zone, um, even a horrible war like World War II, um, uh, you know, 
human beings are remarkably resilient, and most people who come back are um, able to lead productive lives. I mean, their you know their their lives are not ruined. I don't want to minimize um, how terrible war is and and how terrible the effects of war frequently are. But I also don't want to overstate it. Uh, I, I you know I, I never want to give the impression that every GI who comes back from a war zone uh, is is somehow a potential monster or, uh, you know, is um, uh, given to uh, bad behavior and, and that sort of thing, because that that's not true. Or psychologically disturbed. What about the raping, et cetera, that's going on now in the American military and certainly... It's happening in the Australian military now with women because aren't you trained when you're trained to become killers to remove the feminine instinct and the feelings and the sensitivity and that women become well, sort um, of, I don't know. I look at it somewhat differently. Yeah, um, yeah um, separate and apart from wars, combat, military and that sort of thing, I've written a lot over the years about... Um, the mistreatment of women and um, sexism and, and, and the way men, I, I've mostly been looking at it from the perspective of the United States, but the, the, the way men view and treat women and, and sort of um, um, the way women are viewed by the society as a whole. And um, it just seems to me that we've never paid enough attention to the abusive way that women are treated, or, or I should say the abusive ways in which women are treated. And, um, you know, it's essentially a very sexist society, so that many, many guys in the United States uh, grow up with the idea that um, mistreating women is fine, and among large segments of the male population, um, it's something to be proud of. So that when you get into a hyper-macho situation, which the, which the military is mostly, or um, in um, the professional sports world, for example, and, and other hyper-macho aspects of the society, you get. Um, this heightened mistreatment of, of women. You get rapes, you get sexual uh, abuse, you get um, disrespectful um, treatment as, as almost as a matter of routine. And if you don't crack down on that, which the military has not properly cracked down on that, if you don't crack down on that, uh, young guys will, will assume that it's okay. And it will just build on itself. So I think um, that there is a problem with the way uh, women are um, mistreated and, uh, and uh, abused, uh, often horribly abused in the military. But I think that it's difficult to sort of segment it out from the rest of the society, because I think that we do um, um, a terrible job in terms of um, the way we treat women generally. Well, then, um, Bob in the United Herbert, States. Um I'm interviewing Bob Herbert, a former op-ed columnist for the New York Times, and he's now a distinguished senior fellow at Demos. Why then, what I don't understand 
really, being a woman myself, <laughs> is why is it okay to mistreat women? Where, where on earth does that come from? Well, I think that <laughs> I, I think that that has uh, very much been the way of the world from my reading of history for as as, as long as I'm a, a, aware of it. I mean, guys uh, mistreat women. I think it's uh, reprehensible. I think that it's intolerable. I think the society um, uh, should unite in an effort to put an end to it. Um, but I, I mean, I I just think that. Guys have been doing that, you know, throughout history. And frankly, uh, you know, there are, are other societies that are even much, much worse yeah. than, the, than the United States in, in, in the treatment of women. And I think one of the reasons that it continues uh, for decade and century after century is that uh, societies don't unite and say, you know what, this is wrong, we have to stop. And there are going to be sanctions, severe sanctions for the mistreatment of of women. Um, we we have not done that, and that's why I think the mistreatment con- continues. Do you think it's got anything to do with sexuality? No, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. If you, if you're asking me, do I think that it's natural, it's somehow natural or genetic for men to mistreat women? My answer to that would be no. I don't think so. I think that it's cultural. I think cultures um, say um, that, mm. that this is that this is okay. That not only is this okay, this is good. That this is the way you're going to be. Uh, that if you're the big, tough, macho man, and um, you have lots of women, and um, you can keep them in line by mistreating them, then you you know your peers are going to applaud you, and you're going to get benefits from that. I mean, I think all of that stuff. As um, sick as it seems, I think it's cultural. Uh, I don't think that it's um, natural to mistreat women. I, I mean, I don't believe that for a moment. Mm. Okay. And, and 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 things that are cultural uh, can be changed. You can you can change yes. cultural dynamics. It's not easy, but you yeah, can do it. I agree with that. So let's move on to the next topic at hand, and that would be Obama. I I was very interested in your comments when you wrote to me about what you want to talk about. You said, I'm interested in Obama and his failure to even try to leave a progressive coalition. I think of that as the last promise of Obama, though, frankly, I never had very high hopes in the first place. Why didn't you? Well, I didn't think uh, I've been covering Obama since he ran for the Senate in Illinois. Um, You know, I, I... I never thought of Obama as a particularly liberal politician. Um, he's um, very much, you know, a, a middle-of-the-road kind of guy who, who uh, would like to achieve consensus. He's had uh, great success um, throughout his uh, adult life doing that, going all the way back um, to college in his days uh, at Harvard. Um, so he, he tries to... Uh, bring both sides together. Um, I'm, you know, not a big fan of that approach. I'm a, a you know, very personally, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of um, tough leadership so that uh, there are things that you stand for or that you favor or, or uh, groups that you're fighting for um, where you'll go to the mat. Mm. on behalf of those ideas or those um, individuals. So, you know, 
and I think that that's especially important now because the, the um, sort of the dynamics of American politics have shifted. The, the Republican Party has moved so far to the right that they've taken the center to the right with them. So what we think of as liberal now, uh, when I was a young man, that was considered a centrist position. Mm. Um, so, you know, so I don't, I don't think of Obama as a, as a, a liberal or particularly progressive. He's more progressive than the Republican Party. He's more progressive than the conservatives, people who identify themselves as conservatives now. But from my perspective, he's, he's not liberal or particularly uh, progressive. And so since we have not had a lot of strong leadership on the left in the in the US the balance of power has shifted overwhelmingly um to the right and so you know we're in a fix You sure are <laughs> <laughs> But so the people who don't have um strong leadership fighting on their behalf are um poor people um, the middle class, working people, you know, of uh, of every class except for the the very well-to-do, um, ethnic minorities, um, women, young people, students, um, you know, these are folks that don't have people going to the mat in favor of their interests. Labor uh, falls into that category, um, so that's a problem. So. We need leadership to pull together a progressive uh, coalition, and I don't think that that has come from Obama. Yeah, but it, it strikes me, and I, I spend a lot of time in the States too, speaking to hundreds of thousands of people. There's a passivity that I don't really quite understand. For instance, I might have an audience and I talk to them about how much money, about a trillion dollars, is spent per year on the military and on killing. Um, and that the people in America don't have a free healthcare system. And, you know, if that happened in Australia, by God would there be trouble if someone tried to tra take away our free healthcare. I mean, people would be outraged. And pe when I say that to an American audience, they sort of sit there passively. But don't you think that's because you have it? So, for example, if you said to an American audience, we're going to take away or if you said to Americans that we're going to take away Social Security, you would have outrage yeah, in this pretty, country. That's because we have Social Security. We don't have free health care in this country, so Americans don't think that it's normal uh, to have free health care. Americans don't think that free health care is a right, for example. I know, it's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a, amazing. I, yeah. sat, I sat next to a man in a plane once, years ago, and he said, I'm not going to spend my tax dollars on your health care. I nearly vomited <laughs> into his lap. And and then I then I heard the president of the AMA American Medical Association I don't know in the late seventies say medicine is a privilege and not a right and I thought he should be oh deregistered he should be struck <laughs> off the register as a doctor you know and I speak but now. you know beyond uh, even beyond that this passivity that you're talking about because mm -hmm. I agree with you on that, mm -hmm. um, I think that that is mostly uh, a normal state of affairs. I mean, ordinary people, for example, were, were even pretty um, pretty passive during the long years of the Depression. You had a very active left um, in during the Depression, and, and uh, uh, labor came to be uh, uh, very active. Uh, and so uh, you could get people to follow that kind of leadership. But just in general, people were, were pretty passive. 
And as as I came along um, in the, um, you know, I'm a product, of, I'm a baby boomer. I'm a product of those uh, post-World War II years. Um, when I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, um, the only period when it seemed that there was a very uh, sort of very dynamic forces in the population was really in the 60s and then continuing into the 70s, especially with the women's movement and the environmental movement. And the 80s, so, and the, 80s the anti-nuclear so, weapons movement. Yeah. So um, so uh, that was d- done in conjunction with civil rights and with the anti-war movement and that sort of thing, and a mm-hmm. lot of the energy came from the youngsters on the college campuses, et cetera, et cetera. But that was an extraordinary period in American history. It lasted for, you know, probably a, a dozen years or, or so, um, maybe, a little, maybe a little longer. Um, but that was unusual. Uh, before and, and after, before that, back in the 50s, we, we were pretty quiet. And then after that, we've, we've been pretty passive as well. Um, I have uh, thought that, you know, workers who have been getting the short end of the stick for decades now in the United States, labor unions have been under attack, wages have been um, depressed, jobs have been sent overseas or destroyed by um, technological ad- advances, and uh, workers have just been um, mistreated to a fairly well. But they have not risen up in uh, angry response. I think that there should be forces out there organizing the unemployed. We have millions and millions of unemployed men and women mm-hmm. in the United States, and they, they and their families are suffering. Um, you know, I'd love to see them organized uh, so that they become like a major protest movement and then could become aligned with other protest movements. And then, then maybe you could begin to see some transformational change in this country. But right now, that sort of thing is not happening. It feels like the country's ripe for a revolution, in fact. And, you know, you never know what will catalyze and spark a revolution. For instance, the Arab Spring was sparked by a man who was selling fruit in Tunisia, and he was so annoyed with the government's restrictions on what he was doing, he burnt himself to death. Well, I think that's true. You don't know what's going to spark it. Yeah. But, but you won't have a revolution in the United States. You you can have people rise up and demand change, which yeah. is what they thought they were getting with Obama, actually, when they voted in 2008. Yeah. Uh, but you can have people rise up and demand uh, change. Uh, but you won't get a revolution in the United States. The, the Americans like their country, and they like the way the country is constituted. They just don't a lot do not like what's been going on um, in the country. They would like the, the political system to work, but they don't want a different kind of political system. They would like the school system to be better, but they don't want to revolutionize the school system uh, in, in the United States. So I, I don't think this is a country that's ripe for revolution, but it is a country that's um, pretty desperate for change. That's the feeling that I get when I go around the country mm-hmm. talking. Yeah. to ordinary men men and women. And and one of the things, there are some things that are, I think, going on that are pretty dangerous right now in the United States. Tell us. One, one is that um, people have lost confidence to a tremendous degree in, the, um, in, in many of the major institutions in this country. 
So they, they look with contempt, for example, on the national government in Washington. Uh, uh, both parties are held pretty much in, uh, in contempt. Uh, the, the Supreme Court used to be revered in the United States. Mm. That is absolutely no longer um, the case. Yeah. Uh, people do not talk a lot about um, the overwhelming influence of big money in, 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 in politics, but they're aware of it, and they're disgusted by it. Mm. They, they, really, they really hate it. They don't mm. talk a lot about it. They talk more about jobs, for example, but they really hate it. And, and the this influence of big money has made much of the electorate really cynical, so that they just look at the politicians and they roll their eyes. They don't believe what anyone is saying, mm. left or right, Democrats or, or Republicans. But beyond that, you have... Uh, increasing numbers of people without gainful employment. I mean, I'm talking millions and millions of people, and an awful lot of young people who are both out of work, out of school, not getting a, a decent education, having no idea basically what they're doing from mm -hmm. one day to the next. So you mm -hmm. have that going on. At the same time, as this is a country that is saturated in guns, and the, 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 the amount of firepower yeah. in the hands of ordinary Americans is really staggering, because just like we've sort of taken the lid off of money in politics and said pretty much anything goes, we pretty much had, have done the same thing um, with guns. I mean, under Clinton, they had an assault weapons ban, for example, and that ban lapsed at these ridiculous weapons that are like wartime weapons. And that ban lapsed, and even under a Democratic administration, uh, it couldn't be reinstated. Even when Obama was president and, and you had both houses of Congress in the hands of Democrats, there was no reinstatement of the assault weapons ban. Why not? So, Why not? Because this country is crazy for guns. There's a, there's this whole cowboy mentality that... the. Uh, that the history of this country is wrapped up in the idea of the frontier and freedom and cowboys and, and that sort of thing. And it's really pushed uh, by um, conservatives and the Republican Party and the National Rifle Association and that sort of thing. So the idea of having a gun for uh, tens, scores of millions, if not most Americans, is considered absolutely normal. I mean, you, you, you know, if you get out of a... I live in New York City, so there's a pretty straight, tight controls on uh, guns in, in New York. But if you get outside of New York, I mean, it's just common for people to have guns. They have guns in their cars. They have guns in their homes, in their bedrooms, and that sort of thing. So that is incredibly dangerous. And, and um, you know, the criminals are all armed uh, to the teeth. There's a lot of Gangs, gang activity in the in the United States. These young people who don't have jobs and don't have a good education, um, they gravitate. They don't have good family lives either. They gravitate towards uh, gangs. So there's a tremendous number of gangs in this country, and those gangs are heavily armed. So if something goes haywire, that's what I mean by dangerous. If something goes haywire in a time when people are losing faith in their institutions mm. and you have uh, millions and millions of people unemployed, well, um, then you can get into a terribly tragic situation. I, I, I really worry about that. Like, you mean like a civil war? Not a civil war, but, you you know, we've had terrible riots in this, in, in this country. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you look at the uh, riot that happened in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict, 
I mean, I remember uh, way back in 1967, I, I grew up in New Jersey, um, so I lived in Montclair, which was not far from Newark. 1967 was the year Newark went up in flames, and that same summer, Detroit went up in flames. They were terrible riots. Neither one of those cities has ever recovered. All those years, 1967, the riots mm. were so bad, the cities never recovered. So you, you can get things like that. And, and we also, we periodically have in this country these mass shootings. You know, mm. somebody goes off and uh, kills a dozen or two dozen or, or three dozen people. I mean, you know, it's just... It's just awful. We cover it for a couple of days, two or three days, you know, and everybody says how terrible it is, you know, and, and then you move on. And these are just sort of individual instances. If you start to get anything um, that's somewhat more systematic uh, by people who are upset and, and, and dissatisfied mm. with, with what's going on or who are at sort of at their wit's end, um, uh, you can have a terrible situation. So I, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I think we're not paying enough attention um, to the dangers of having so many guns in the hands of so many people. Um, but I, I don't expect that to change anytime soon either. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> Very cheerful. I hadn't extrapolated as far as that. I mean, I know that anyone can have guns in America and that there are a lot of mentally unstable people because Reagan emptied out the mental institutions and put these poor sick people in the streets and some of them are clinically paranoid, they're psychotic, uh, all sorts of things and they can get guns and that's usually... Yeah, but they're not the, one, but they're not the ones who, who, who are really... They're, they're not the ones who are uh, really so dangerous. They, 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 it's not, they're not that heavily armed. It's a, it's a, it's a different type of person. Yeah, who's what sort of uh, heavily armed in this country? I mean, you know, you have heavily armed mainstream Americans, not people who have been let out of mental institutions, um, and you have um, heavily armed criminals mm. uh, who are not crazy, but they're but they're criminal, and you have heavily armed gangs, and you have um, militias. Um, you know, with with whatever weird beliefs they may be may be holding. So, so it it. it it's not sort of like the people who ought to be in mental institutions who are the are the biggest threat. Um, it's more the people who are, are seen as relatively normal. Yeah, but, you know, you think of that guy in Norway, Brevik, who killed, what, 89 people. He was, he was clearly psychotic. The Kent State Massacre... Oh, I think you're psychotic if you do something like that. Yeah. You, you know. I'm, I'm just saying that I, I don't know that, that, necessi- that, that, that that's not the kind of pattern that I'm talking about. Uh, uh, In other words, that's not what was going on uh, when Los Angeles went up in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdict, or, or that's not what happened um, when uh, Nork and But um, that was more burning of Detroit buildings and up. destroying property, less that's shooting. what I'm saying. There are now more guns and more high-powered weapons in yeah. the hands of pe- in people. But also, there were t- a lot of people were killed. They didn't. They weren't killed in fires in those riots. They were killed. They were shot to death. Oh, were they? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. They had snipers and and that sort of thing. Yeah. So is this pre gunfire is like the most normal thing, and we 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 have a uh, um, hundred thousand people are shot in the United States every year. 
30,000, a little over 30,000 are killed every year by guns. Uh, that's that's uh, homicides, uh, suicides, and, and um, accidents. <laughs> 30,000 a year. You know, we had a terrible massacre in Australia at Port Arthur in Tasmania many years ago, and the Prime Minister passed a law that every gun in Australia would be handed in and they would be destroyed. And it's illegal. And what we it's did in the, what we did in the United States, what we did in the United States was we got a ruling from the United States Supreme Court that said essentially the Second Amendment was absolute, and all Americans have a constitutional right to own a gun. Yeah, the Second Amendment so was written the, what the, in the eighteen hundreds. One hundred eighty degrees. Pardon. <laughs> the Second Amendment it's, was written in the eighteen hundreds or something when they were fighting the in British. The, in the in the uh, in the uh, 1700. Had no relevance at all to modern society at all. No, I no, I agree. I don't understand how the NRA has such power, Bob Herbert. That's actually very peculiar. <laughs> I uh, I agree with you, and I I think that that is um, um, obviously it's largely political. But I think that the the biggest thing is the cultural component. I mean, there just has. If, if you if you think about the history of the United States, mm. that um, that people were settling um, uh, this country, taking uh, land away from Native Americans, that you had uh, uh, slavery, where where you had to keep the slaves in line, that there was a revolution where you're going to fight a war against an immense power, an enormous power um, in England, but then. You have the frontier where you could always move west in the United States for for hundreds of years. You could just um, set out. Um, I guess it was Huck Finn who said he's going to uh, light out for the territory. You could always set out and go west. Well, you needed weapons out there to um, kill for, the Indians. Uh, game to to uh, uh, you might be killing um, Native Americans. You 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 might you might be I don't know what protecting your cattle from rustlers uh, you might be in towns where there they were brand new and there was no real system of law whatever and all of that was glorified uh, by the movies and popular entertainment mm. uh, in this country and um, the United Americans have always taken pride on sort of um, uh, sort of the lone figure standing up against the evil uh, Doers, you know, where well, you have to have a weapon in, in order to do that. So it was just normal to have to have guns in this country. So what would you do about it? Say you were Obama, huh? What would you do yeah. about it if you um, were the commander in chief? You had the bully pulpit. What would you do, Bob Herbert? Well, what I would have done uh, was try and seize the moment early. Um, the, the, you'd have to go back to the time when Obama took office, yes. when he had a tremendous mandate, yes. and the country was very frightened that the economy was going to collapse, and, and um, he had both houses of Congress in the hands of Democrats. And that was the time to make your big moves, mm. um, both economically, but I think on some of these cultural issues also. Mm. And you wouldn't have been able to ban guns in the United States. You just can't do that. But you might have been able, you should have been able 
um, to rally Democrats in Congress to do to take some steps like assault weapons um, ban and that sort of thing. What's an assault um, weapon? I don't even know what that is. That's one of the, that that's uh, we, we, where you think of you have a pistol and you can fire a few bullets or you have a rifle and you can fire a few bullets. An assault weapon is more like a machine gun where you can just go pop, 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 pop and those bullets will come out, you know, at a tremendous rate. So um, it's very difficult for anyone to defend against that or, or even to seek, have time to seek uh, cover. And, and uh, these weapons, look like an AK-47, you know, they're military-style weapons. Uh, these weapons were uh, banned under uh, Bill Clinton. And, uh, but, but it was a ban that had um, a, a sunset date, so the ban lapsed. Mm. And, uh, and then it was never, uh, it was never uh, reinstated. But the truth is that you're, um, you can't do anything quickly about guns in, in the United States. A lot of the problems in this country, um, guns are one of them, um, money and politics is another one, are, um, are a result in large part, or to one degree or another, um, with the makeup of the Supreme Court. And uh, Democrats and liberals, uh, I talk about losing your way, Democrats and liberals over the past few decades um, have lost sight of the importance of the Supreme Court. And, and while Republicans and conservatives have completely understood how important the court was, so step by step mm. by step, they've mm. been placing their people on the federal courts and on the Supreme Court mm. until the point where now they have a majority. So now these problems are so entrenched that it's going to take decades to get out from under them. I keep telling people there's no, there's not going to be any short answer uh, for any of these things. So when you tell people that, are they optimistic, pessimistic, depressed, what? You know, I think it's so funny. You know, Jimmy Carter took a lot of hit uh, way back um with his so-called malaise speech where he never said the word malaise. And he um, wore a cardigan in the White House. <laughs> he did. Uh, Carter was not much of a leader uh, either. He was more of a scold than a leader. Mm. But, um, but I think there is a malaise in the land now that people feel that the problems are so large mm. and um, government leaders and other institutions are so ineffective uh, and that the power of money has become so great that these problems may not be able to be solved. Mm -hmm. And individual people uh, very often think that there's nothing that they as individuals can do about it. Mm -hmm. They don't, they, 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 sometimes I'll be making speeches and in the question and answer period, they'll say, you know, you know, Bob, you know, what could I do about it? I'm just an ordinary person. I feel like, you know, there's nothing I could say or do that would have any effect. What do you tell that's, them? And, and, that's, and that's widespread. Yeah, what, what, well, what do you tell I've them? Well, I've been telling people that one of the biggest, one of the most important things uh, that's needed in the United States now is uh, increased civic engagement, a heightened sense of civic engagement by ordinary people. I'm telling people now that just any issue that's important to you. It might be the local uh, school system, or it might be an environmental uh, issue, or it might be employment or a labor union or whatever. But then um, 
become more engaged than you might otherwise have been. Uh, you know, volunteer your services or uh, organize a meeting of your uh, friends, relatives, and neighbors to sort of brainstorm and say, well, what might we be able to do about what's going on in the school system or, or what might we be able to do about this politician who's maybe he or she is a, is a very good person and, and they're in trouble because they're being threatened by the Tea Party or something like that. But I'm saying that you want to start getting more engagement to the point where it becomes natural yeah. for people to be engaged, to well, get together. Well, that means getting them up off their couches Away from That's their right. television sets and away from their computers and, you know, Twitter I, and I, Facebook. I absolutely and... agree. But mm. I think if we could start to do that on the one hand, while on the other hand, get some um, uh, people who are used to being active, for example, people in the, in the labor unions or people in the activist uh, community or some people in the foundations and that sort of thing, if they could begin to get some kind of an agreement on one or two issues that they'll get together on, that they could rally around, mm. then after a while you might be able to build up a critical mass of um, uh, protest uh, and, um, uh, and, and start to build a um, campaign for reform. It won't be revolution, but it, but it might be uh, reform. Um, and because I think that if if anything is going to change in this society, it's not going to come from the politicians. I think of the politicians not. are too much too much in the pocket of big money, um, and we're not going to get substantial or transformative change from uh, from ordinary politicians. So I think it's going to have to come from ordinary people, but they're going to have to be organized, and that's easier said than done. Well, the politicians, let's be frank, are really corporate prostitutes now. Um, they're, and, they're, and I. I I agree with that. Yeah, and change does almost always come from the grassroots. And um... yeah, and w the other thing I tell people is, I know the problems look enormous and they are entrenched, but um, you should not underestimate your power ultimately to to change things. Yeah. Um, for example, if you look at the employment uh, situation in, in this country right now. Um, it's easier. To, it would be easier to ultimately get a turnaround um, in terms of uh, fairness and the treatment of workers um, than it would have been to if you were in the 1950s to talk about securing black rights mm -hmm. uh, in this country. The the the, uh, the early um, civil rights activists and civil rights leaders. I don't think they could ever have imagined the kind of change that, that, that they would be willing to uh, bring about in this country. No one paid any attention to them. They, they, they could no more get a story in the newspaper or on television than the man in the moon until they started uh, having those protests and people were, um, you, know, you know, the government sick dogs and fire hoses on them. But for years before that, there was no coverage at all. But people just felt so strongly about their rights felt so strongly that the treatment was so egregiously unfair mm. that they said, we're mm. not going to put up with it. We're just going to keep fighting. I feel the same way. Any longer. Yeah. Exactly. I feel the same way about the women's movement. The women's movement, uh, were, feminists were ridiculed, mercilessly ridiculed in the, in the uh, beginning. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of support in the wider society um, for them, but they were on a mission.
you know, it, it was it was the same thing. They're not they weren't going to take it anymore. Mm. That that it was just too outrageous, too egregious, mm. and so they fought, 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 step by step by step, and then ultimately you prevail. So I'm you know I'm I'm in favor of you know viewing these big issues um, like that. That you have to start somewhere and you have to be committed and you have to try and and, and rally people. Uh, to your cause. Well, I totally agree with you, Bob Herbert, because in fact I've led in in my life three revolutions, if you will. Um, the movement in Australia against French atmospheric tests, which ended in success. The movement against mm-hmm. uranium mining by talking to the union movement about the medical dangers of mining uranium. And mm-hmm. then the movement in America against nuclear weapons and the nuclear weapons freeze. So I will endorse what you're saying that one person with fire in their belly i guess um can lead a whole movement and change society those are fantastic examples that is that's exactly the kind of thing that i'm talking about absolutely you're absolutely right and you 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 just know that nothing will stop you and if the front door is closed you go in the back door or underneath or you find a way to get to whoever you've got to get to and you influence them because you know you're right and you're speaking the truth. Um, and you don't quit because no. you, you run into one defeat or one roadblock or something like and that. And you're you always going to be attacked. Um, and the more attacks you get, the better it is. I mean, the nuclear That's industry exactly right. attacked me like crazy now, and I wear it as a badge of honor. It's like being on Nixon's blacklist. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you happen to have been right all the, all the, all those years. I mean, you know, I... I, I uh, there's a lot of madness out there yes there is well Bob thanks for a wonderful discussion and opening our minds and hearts and brains to what has to be done and and I honour you for what you do and uh, and I'm sure we'll talk again in the future Uh, Helen I always appreciate talking to you this is wonderful so thank you so much for having me on thank you thank you dear Bob my guest today on If You Love This Planet was Bob Herbert, a former op-ed columnist for the New York Times and a distinguished senior fellow at DEMOS, a national organization in the U.S. that combines research, policy development and advocacy to influence public debate and to catalyze change. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's been a pleasure having you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, with you and with Bob Herbert. And we'll be back next time with another fascinating show. Bye for now. You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, if you love this planet.org.